The talk is about uh, renunciation, right effort, and freedom. Not necessarily in that order. This summer, I took a visitor that came to uh, Honolulu um, to a Slacky guitar festival that happens every year in the summer in Honolulu. It's something that uh, I had seen. It's, it's put on television every year, but I'd never seen it live. I had had a busy day that day, so uh, I couldn't go to most of it. Uh, but I went to the last few songs that were played. The few people that I saw were really good. You know, it's uh, this music that kind of comes out of the land of Hawaii, and it, it represents uh, the, the uh, beautiful spirit of Hawaii. The last person was introduced as a master. And within, you know, maybe a half a minute of him playing, the whole consciousness of the group was transformed. Uh, it was, he was such a different quality. One could really see why he was introduced as a master. And in feeling him, it's like his energy was completely effortless, but totally skilled. And this incredible balance of effortless relaxation, yet complete presence, complete spontaneity. In our practice, we're trying to find that balance, which, of course, it's called practice. You know, you can imagine this man was in his 80s, and he'd played since he was a teenager, and played every day, all day. You know, so it takes (laughs) that kind of practice to become a master at something, to have that ease of skill, uh, relaxation, and freedom within a form. Uh, So tonight what I'm trying to talk about is the renunciation that we have to do to surrender to a form, to find the freedom of facing life as it is. This morning, in some of the questions, uh, there was talk about finding this balance of being able to truly receive a moment, to truly receive what's happening in our life moment by moment, but also to have this kind of active uh, recognition of what's happening and not taking it personally. We talk about mindfulness as as having certain characteristics. We usually mention three, the ability to recognize what's happening, the ability to accept what's happening, and the ability to not identify with what's happening. As you can see, if you just take those three characteristics, uh, you'll see that there's not just a passivity there. There's acceptance but there's recognition. There's acceptance, but there's non-identification. There's a, there's a powerful balance of these qualities of receptivity and active. When that's truly in balance, we can be wherever we are in the moment and be free in it. 
You know, what you'll hear us over and over say, it doesn't matter what's happening. You can get liberated noticing fear. You can get liberated noticing a sound. You can get liberated lying down to go to sleep. This is a quotation from the Zen tradition. Zen teachers like to draw circles. Sometimes they draw them around from right to left, sometimes around from left to right. These circles can represent emptiness, fullness, or the moon. Or they can represent practice. The circle that goes around from right to left against the path of the sun (coughs) on the sundial represents the hard way of practice before any glimmer of understanding appears. When it goes around from left to right, following the path of the sun, it represents the easier way of practice after a glimmer opens that way. But both before and after the glimmer, the practice requires investment and conscientious diligence. It probably feels like in a day of practice both happen. (laughs) You know, that sometimes we're going with the sun, sometimes we're going against the sun. But usually what happens is that if we really put in our time you know, and put in the years of paying attention in this way, uh, there will be a shift from it, the practice being such a struggle and, and having so much doubt and conflict to hopefully more ease and ability to listen to what works for us within the form. When we first start this kind of practice, it requires surrendering to the form without having any idea what to expect. If you remembered your first few days of your first retreat, uh, if you could, (laughs) I don't think that we usually can remember them that vividly, uh, but they're usually incredibly painful, those first few days uh, that we practice or the first retreat. For me, because I didn't know what I was getting into the first retreat, it was a real stretch, and I couldn't do the whole form. Right effort for me that first retreat was going to skip the first sitting in the morning, going to breakfast, going to the 8.15 sitting, and then I would take a thinking bath. I would lay down for an hour and think. That's, that's what I did, you know, that first retreat. Then I sat again, and then I took another thinking bath. And I would put that sort of in my schedule, sit, think bath, sit, think bath, uh, <laughs> lunch. <laughs> then I would take a four-hour walk, come in, have tea, sit, talk, and then I would walk. I did one walking, that first retreat. That's, that's what I could do, and I was at my limit. Uh, I stretched to the max. Then I came um, to be on staff here. 
And by the end of the year that I was on staff here, I felt that my whole practice changed to being able to do much more than the schedule. And it didn't take a push. It was like I was so um, willing to die meditating. Literally, I just, I wanted to understand so much. Uh, Again, it wasn't like I was striving or pushing as much as uh, (laughs) really wanted to know, willing to do anything. And that was natural at that time. That was listening to myself. Uh, In recent years, there's been a way in which I had to learn to find a way of um, backing off within the schedule, and I had to let go of that attachment of doing more. You know, doing less (laughs) was actually doing more. And then I found that doing a little less was actually doing more. It's what's important is finding that edge of growth where we have an honest self-assessment we're not kidding ourselves. We're, we're playing that edge of where we're growing, where we're opening and deepening our understanding, but in balance. The more we get to know ourselves within the practice, the more that understanding of how to do it will come from the inside. Anytime that we do put ourselves into a new form, we'll get that sense of how much struggle or effort it takes to learn a form and what it means, where it's bringing us. Uh, The last two years, in a little bit of time, because I don't have that much time at home, I took a flower arranging class with a teacher that takes a very traditional form of ikebana, Japanese flower arranging, but she teaches it in a way that's like a shikantaza practice where uh, there's the, uh, the teaching is that one can't try. You know, it's meant to be a choiceless awareness. But of course you can't go into that form and do it perfectly. The first year I struggled a lot. It was only five classes. This year there were another five classes. The first few classes I was able to shift to that place of ease, of balance, of spontaneity, but really being present. And one of the last classes, in the third (coughs) arrangement we made, I completely lost it. You know, it's like I had this couple of flowers and I was just, you know, those uh, frogs that you put them in, and I was just smashing it in and pushing it around (laughs) and just struggling to the max. And I heard her go, Michelle, (laughs) it's like, oh, (laughs) oh yeah, it was just so clear. She waited until that moment and she burst out laughing. It wasn't like she's hard. It's just like, look at what you're doing. You know, you are smashing that flower to bits. To do what? You know, what is the goal? You know, what are you doing with that flower? It all comes down, ultimately, whatever we're doing, to what are you doing? What's the motivation? Are you paying attention that clearly? It's humbling to surrender to a new form. When I first did the Brahma Vihara practice, it was such a different form than the Vipassana practice that I had had learned and learned the ropes in for so many years. 
And I found the first month of doing it where I'd really see that trying and striving and efforting uh, and then the seeing it wasn't working and then backing off too much and kind of going off too much and then going back to trying too hard and then backing off too much. That's how you learn a form. And why would we do that anyway? You know, why do one, why does one surrender? And here on this retreat, we surrender at least to the form of the five precepts. Some of us, eight precepts. You know, what is that discipline? Renunciation is called a letting go. And it's meant to be a fire. It's meant to be a structure where we pay attention to what comes up in the mind when we surrender to that form. So what comes up in the mind when we don't read, or when we don't write, or when we're not entertained, or when we say, yes, I won't kill, yes, I won't steal, yes, I'll be celibate, yes, I'll speak the truth. Yes, I won't take alcohol and drugs to intoxicate myself. Now, what does that do? Why are we doing that? We give up what we might want, or we give up our preferences, so that we face our reactions. The Buddha taught that with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling and that we have no control over that, moment by moment, that that's what's arising, that's what's unfolding, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, no control. And that's quite vulnerable, that's part of the first noble truth of facing life as it is, facing dukkha. When we surrender to a form, we're meant to be uncovering the reactive mind, uncovering the preferences. When I came here on staff, the first (laughs) months of being here, I didn't understand that very well. One of the things that I found really helpful when we were on staff was um, out of, I forget how many there was of us, but out of all of us, once a week, one of us would pick a discipline And the rest of us uh, had the choice whether to follow it or not, but most of us did. So, for example, somebody picked that we all had to do metta at the 615 sitting for a week. And there was a little (laughs) sign-up sheet that you could uh, say, I'm not going to do that this week. But if you signed up for it, you were meant to do it. And most people did it. There was another week where we... (laughs) I picked this, which was a dreadful thing to pick. I, I picked uh, doing standing meditation at the 5.15 sitting every morning. <laughs> now, that's not a very fun thing to do first thing in the morning. It was an hour of standing first thing in the morning. Now, I'm sure a lot of people on staff hated me for that. Um, some, somebody picked being silent at lunch every day. And the idea was to watch what came up in our minds when we did it. Now that, you might understand that on some level, but unless we're fully enlightened, we don't understand that 
on every level. So, for example, at the 615 sitting, in those days there was a house across the street with people living in it that weren't involved with IMS. They had this dog chained um, up all day and all night, and the dog barked all the time, unless it was eating. (laughs) So at the 615 sitting, we were all sitting in here doing metta, and the dog barked and barked and barked next night, bark, 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 next night, bark, bark, bark. And for six nights, the dog barked. And you could feel the tension in the room just building and building. And we're doing metta, may all beings be happy, may I be happy. And the sixth night, we were walking out of this hall, and this friend turned around to me and he said, I hate that dog! Oh, you know. And it was so wonderful, you know, to just feel that opening of the anger, you know, the uncovering of the aversion. And for me, that taught me something. You know, I didn't want to admit that I was sitting there furious at that dog. You know, it was nicer to think that I could just sit there blissed out in metta. But that's not what was happening for most of us. You could feel it in the room. You could cut it with a knife. (laughs) Uh, So from that experience, it opened up to seeing that um, some of us would choose to go to the airport and just watch our mind. Or we would choose to go to a place, uh, you might not all know this place called Spags, but it's a real discount place in Worcester that's nuts. You know, it's like the ultimate, you know, in choice and craziness. Uh, And most of us have kind of rejected that aspect of our culture. It was to go in there and just watch the mind. And that opened up, again, everything that we do in life there's this possibility of instead of, you know, struggling or fighting to watch what happens with an interest, seeing that whatever reaction we're having, we can learn to be liberated with it or get more entangled. The window wars. (laughs) Every year, and then here at the three-month retreat, but most retreats that we teach, one of the places that people react a lot is around whether the windows should be open or whether they should be closed. And I, too, have have an opinion about this. (laughs) I would imagine that most of us would have an opinion about it. One of the, th- the times of a retreat that I found really interesting was a retreat Upanditu was teaching, and there were window wars, of course, and somebody asked him a question about it, and he said, when you come in the hall and the window is open, leave it open. And when you come in the hall and the window is closed, leave it closed. That's <laughs> like so simple. You know, it's like... I mean, not that, I'm not saying that this is maybe what we should decide to do for the next ten years, but I found that when he said that, there was such a sense of renunciation in it, like, just don't get involved. You know, just see if you can work with what comes up in the mind, however somebody's doing it. You know, can we do that in life? 
can we just notice that we do have an opinion and some places we have a strong an opinion and it would be interesting if people would, would ask questions about it in the morning. You know, I'm still having trouble with asphyxiation. You know, or I'm still having trouble, I'm freezing. You know, how do I work with that? Or I'm not coming in the hall because <laughs> I don't like the windows closed. Or whatever it is, it's, that's the meat of the practice. That's what we're doing here. So the structure is the fire, and we work with what comes up in relationship (coughs) to the structure. In the Theravadan tradition, uh, it's been a, a monastic practice for so long. You know, it hasn't been a lay tradition for so long. And one of the um, beautiful symbols, I think, or metaphors for renunciation and this way of working with whatever comes up is a begging bowl. So mostly, you know, if people did venture into exploring this form, people did it in monks, as monks and nuns, with shaved heads, with robes. But we're all monks or nuns right now, one aspect of it. We're all called yogis for a reason. You know, we have undertaken a very strong practice of renunciation. In the Japanese language, the word begging bowl uh, means just enough. And so one would have this bowl go out, you know, (laughs) with this bowl for the, you know, what one receives for food that day. And one is meant to accept whatever goes in the bowl. You know, there's no special needs in that situation. You know, there's no, you know, thing of rice on the back table just in case. You know, one had to take whatever one received. Now, this is no accident, whether one actually has ever done that or one is here receiving the food. Um, That whole metaphor of the begging bowl is really how we're meant to go through a day, that we receive each moment as just enough. You know, can we see that when we receive a sound we don't like, or a sound we like, or a neutral sound, that that's meant to be just enough. That's the teaching. If we're fully enlightened, that's what we do. It's this effortless um, attention that is so in balance, the mindfulness and equanimity is so balanced that one sees clearly what's happening and it's okay, just the way it is. It isn't flawed. An unpleasant moment isn't seen as flawed. A pleasant moment isn't seen as something to hold on to. A neutral feeling is not seen as not intense enough. Uh, It's seen clearly just for what it is. It's just an unpleasant thought, or it's just a pleasant thought, 
or it's just a pleasant vibration in the body, or it's just a pleasant uh, emotion of enjoyment. It's just whatever it is. It's just enough. No need to hold on to it. No need to push it away. So the goal of the practice in this way is letting go of control. It's just receiving that flow of life as it happens. And then if we do react, you know, that's where we investigate where we're still not free, where we're stuck. I received a message and a gift today, and the gift is this uh, Hershey bar. (laughs) And the father of a young adult, a young man who's 16, um, came to see me today for an interview. And his son has come to two young adult retreats. So he came into the meeting with me today with this And his son really wanted him to bring this. It's like he just kept saying, don't forget this, don't forget this, don't forget to tell Michelle. So he came in and he said, um, my son Stephen says, Michelle, uh, to tell Michelle that this is just enough. (laughs) Well, at the young adult retreat this year, I decided not to hold back you know, with the teaching about dukkha uh, this year, you know, so, you know, you sort of, <laughs> you sort of wonder with teenagers in our culture whether to really kind of water it down a little bit. You know, they're just thirsty for the truth. Uh, and this year, it was interesting because I I told a little bit more about this just enough with a begging bowl, but then I told a story about um, working with craving around chocolate. Uh, (laughs) So, um, in terms of the teaching about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and how it's out of our control, it's rolling along, at the end of the talk, a number of kids came up to me crying and hugged me. I mean, it was so profound for them. Uh, And they said things like, you know, I recognize the truth. You know, it's like we all recognize the truth, and it doesn't matter what age we are when we're ripe for it. I could just see that it had gone in. And one of the ways that, you know, talking about chocolate <laughs> with teenagers you know, is, is interesting because there, you can imagine, you know, how you struggled with stuff like that as a teenager. Um, So I talked about for myself that when I would come on retreats, part of the renunciation, um, what happened was that I didn't have craving for sweets come up. That impulse fell away. And I would love it so much when I was on retreat because I didn't have to deal with that craving. But then when I went out back into my life, it came back and I'd feel really frustrated, you know, and not free. So one retreat, and this just happened naturally. It wasn't like I tried to do anything with this, but one retreat, um, uh, there was a staff retreat that I was on, and I had to go out, um, which I hadn't planned on, but I bought chocolate for everyone on the staff, plus some teachers, and it was a lot of chocolate. You know, it was just a lot more than this, (laughs) which is why he told me this is just enough. 
Uh, this was pounds of chocolate, you know. Uh, so I brought it back to my room, and I had that really sick feeling <laughs> that I was going to eat it all. <laughs> you know, and it's like how easily corruptible I was, you know. It was like that you know, impulse of generosity changed into this incredible, like, <laughs> craving. Uh, <laughs> and all those years of being attached to sweetness just came out full force. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be mindful of this. That was the bargain. You know, I'm going to do this. Okay, Michelle, you can, let's see this pattern full force, but be mindful of it. So I, you know, <laughs> there was the chocolate. So I said, you know, okay. And just, you know, that reaching, reaching, <laughs> reaching there. Very slow. This was very slow, very microscopic. Touching, lifting, lifting, wanting, wanting, lifting, wanting, wanting, opening. You know, it was just, inc- it took me hours to do this. <laughs> Touching, contact, tasting, and then sweet, 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 pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. (laughs) Then it was gone. And then I'd look, seeing, wanting, reaching, lifting, lifting. This this went on and on, you know, hours of this. uh (laughs) And in some ways, you know, I'm the type of person who never gets sick from eating that much chocolate. It's not like there's any behavior modification that happens on that level. Um, But I would watch that suffering. You know, what was really different is that I was mindful of how quickly that sweetness and that pleasant sensation would disappear and then that craving it again. It's just to be not judging it you know, to not judge it, to allow it, to be mindful of it. That pattern didn't disappear overnight. But what had happened is that the shift from sort of most of my life sneaking food and not acknowledging that uh, pain of wanting, not being able to be mindful of the wanting, not being able to really receive the sweetness, uh, shifting from fighting that pattern to accepting it, was a revolution. And slowly in my life I started to see that pattern disappear. You know, it actually (laughs) was one of these patterns that really disappeared. Uh, So, yeah, this, this is just enough. You know, can we play with this stuff so that we're not judging the wanting, we're not judging, um, Wherever we are, in whatever pattern, it's the non-judgmental attention that ultimately heals us. You know, so if we're motivated I, to do something like that out of trying to get rid of the pattern, it would probably backfire. But in that moment when I was sitting there, it was really pure. It was just like, I'm interested in this. I can't stop the pattern but let me see if I can accept it. And then later in my life, I would notice that um, what was really underneath it was anxiety and fear. I would notice it around times when I would have to pack up our house, you know, for a three-month retreat or pack up to leave. I would notice that pattern start to come in, like going to the kitchen and wanting to put food in my mouth. 
And it would be so interesting to me. I'd go, wow, here is that pattern. Let me see if I can be mindful of it. And instead of judging it, you know, hitting myself for it and saying, you know, this, this is back again? Why should, you know, oh no, mindfulness doesn't work. It's back again. You know, that's how we relate to our experience. You know, oh no, back pain is back. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. The practice is a failure because something repeats. You know, what is the, you have to look at what is the motivation. You know, what is freedom really? Is freedom that something repeats or is freedom how we relate to something? And if we're really free, it doesn't matter if it comes back. And for me, it doesn't matter if this pattern comes back because I see it clearly. Oh, it doesn't come back, but, you know, if it did, it, you know, two years ago when I went to pack up, I noticed that tendency. And for me now, it's like, oh boy, it's back. Uh, oh, anxiety. And then I can just feel the anxiety, let it come and go. And I don't need the food at that point or the sweetness. But that took time. But I see the whole way that it shifted was from non-judgmental attention and not trying to get rid of it, but trying to understand it. Sometimes in life we have life situations that occur and they kind of force a surrender and a learning that we might not have chosen. Uh, Sometimes these are deeper karmic um, conditions. For example, I have, was born with a lot of allergies. I'm allergic to cats, dog, horses, mildew, mold, you know, on and on and on. But those inside things that I'm allergic to um, kind of forced me to go out in nature even more than I was inclined to. So whenever, even as a child, when we'd visit people or at home, you know, there was this need to go out because I was allergic. I didn't understand it back then. But it kind of forced solitude. It forced learning how to be quiet. Uh, Having allergies is a difficult conditioning. And yet what I learned from it was that I had to renew um, a kind of inner centering each day. It taught me something. It might not be what I have, would have chosen to learn that, but it taught me. This summer, when Steve and I left Honolulu to come to New Mexico, just uh, at the end of last month, I tend to read Time magazines in, in airplanes. You know, that's usually when I <laughs> read things like that. So the stewardess was handing out magazines and I took a time and I kind of wasn't prepared for this article on Christopher Reeves. Maybe not all of you know what happened to him, but he was the person who played Superman in recent uh, movie uh, movies and he was in a, an incredibly horrible horse accident where he fell off a horse and had a severe injury to the um, vertebra in his upper neck and he's paralyzed from the neck down, completely paralyzed from the neck down. This article had very explicit details 
of what his life is like now. And very um, moving descriptions of how he's reacted to this accident in his life. So, for example, he didn't choose this, you know, consciously for this to happen. And yet, how is he relating to it? Well, it was so moving for me, I, I, I cried most of the airplane ride because uh, his, his words are really touching. So I wanted to share some of what he says about it. I still have to admit to tremendous jealousy of people doing normal, everyday actions. You know, just putting on a coat and walking down a hallway and opening a door and going outside, rummaging around in the kitchen cabinet for forks and knives, using the clicker to change channels on the TV, taking two steps at a time, all those things you'd think, you know, after a while you wouldn't even notice. I realize it's petty, but it bothers me when people say, You played Superman, now you are Superman. They mean well, but they don't know what I go through in the middle of the night. I don't know. I guess that if if part of the definition of Superman is that you keep on going, even if you feel like shit, then I suppose I do reasonably well. You know, what a wonderful change (laughs) in our culture if we could get that that is being Superman. You know, that we keep on going even when we feel like shit. Do you do that in the course of a day in meditation? in the ups and downs, when you don't want to be here, when you don't want to feel like going. But can you keep going, no matter what? And I mean that in the context of keeping going in the way of whatever works for us. And so this doesn't necessarily mean bearing down. It could mean backing off. But it means listening and paying attention He said when he was first uh, coming out of realizing what had happened to him, uh, Christopher Reeves, he said, this can't be my life. There's been a mistake. He spoke of the accident as a failure, as an instant of humiliation and embarrassment. He said, I used to worry when I was making Superman that I'd mess up, you know, Superman hit by bus, that in a headline. He's inclined to be hard on himself. In the first days I kept thinking, I've ruined my life. But you only get one. Can I have another, please? You feel as though you're a creature from another planet, because here on Earth people walk around and breathe on their own. But where I come from, People are on a hose, and they sit in chairs, and they don't stand up. 
but then his mood changes. All that self-pity comes in the beginning, and it does recur. But what you begin to say to yourself, instead of what life do I have, is what life can I build? And the answer is more than I think. So he's spending his time trying to help people, you know, within the context of such a difficult daily life. He's trying to raise money to help people with spinal cord injuries. You know, it's like he's transforming that situation into a place of incredible compassion and understanding. And when I, when I was reading that, you know, there are so many things that we can be petty about. <laughs> you know, look at how we suffer over whether the windows are open or not. Uh, and that's really important to look at. You know, it's like, it's so important to know how important it is to free ourselves, no matter what our condition is. You know, we're all relatively lucky. Uh, incredibly lucky. And then you watch the mind just going, meh, 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 you know, complaining, 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 judging, judging, judging. Uh, and can we learn to see them just as thoughts? To not be a victim of our preferences. To see that there's something deeper than that. There's so many levels to the practice of recognition, acceptance, and non-identifying. On some of my early retreats, I noticed that I couldn't eat in the dining room. And I didn't know what it was. You know, it's like I noticed that I didn't want to go in there and I didn't want to eat in there. Um, But it took me some retreats before I was willing to look at what was going to come up if I actually did it. And I noticed when I first went in the dining room here and I had my food and I was going to see what happened when I went in there uh, to eat, I brought my, I couldn't quite do it fully. I went to the corner of the dining room, turned my chair around so I could look out the windows out into the courtyard here. But that was my limit. You know, that's, was, that was stretching. That was playing my edge. Uh, and I started to notice judging just this incredible judging that was coming up. And I hadn't been able to face it. So that retreat, I slowly started to be able to turn my chair around. Each day I'd turn around bit by bit, and there'd be more judging, more judging, more judging of myself and others. Um, If you pay attention when you go in the dining room, it's pretty intense in there. You know, (laughs) if you're quiet at all, you'll just, especially if you go in, right at the beginning, you know, before the bell rings, and you feel all that anticipation, you know, it's like, when's the bell going to ring? When's the bell going to ring? You know, and I'll, usually I would avoid that. I wouldn't want to face, like, all that energy of waiting and anticipation, so I would always come late. However you relate to it, maybe you're first in line, or maybe you're last, uh, but look at it. See what you're doing there. You know, why are you first? You know, what are you doing in there last? What's going on? 
and at the end of that retreat where I was starting to play with it rather than avoid it, um, I had a friend, Joseph, was sitting that retreat, and he was sitting so that he was looking at everybody putting their food right on their plates. And I thought, oh, how's he doing that, you know? So I went up to him at the end of the retreat, and I said, Joseph, how can you stand that? And he said, I just sit there judging. (laughs) 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 I was like, yeah, why? Why not? You know, <laughs> what's the problem? <coughs> and that was the beginning of being able to see. Oh, yeah, it's just judging. We don't have to get rid of it. But look at your day. Look at the schedule. Again, if you're unless you're fully enlightened, there are places where we avoid. There are places where we get attached and see if you can relate to it as a place to watch your mind rather than it being a problem. And it doesn't have to be something that you force. It, look, it could be that you see that you're not able to play that edge and then wait. And then at some point it will be natural to open up a little bit more in life. So the way the practice unfolds, hopefully, is that we're able to open more and more to what we couldn't open to before. It's a process of opening more and more to life as it is because we're able to see clearly, because we're able to understand. We're protected by mindfulness. So unless we have mindfulness, we're not protected. We only have the defense of reacting aversion, attachment. That's our choice. It's either that we're lost in aversion or attachment and not protected, really, or we're protected by mindfulness in this world. When we're protected by mindfulness, there's a transparency. There's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. You know, life is changing moment to moment and we see so clearly, we're able to flow with it. Ultimately, the practice isn't necessarily letting things go. It's like the definition of renunciation is a kind of enforced letting things go. But ultimately, when we're protected by mindfulness, we just let things be. That's the effortlessness. We don't have to try to let things go because we see it so clearly, it just comes and goes. We don't have to let a judging thought go because when you see it clearly, it just comes and goes. There's no reaction to it. It's okay. It's just a thought. If there's knee pain, if we see it clearly, it's just burning or it's just throbbing. or it's just a jackhammer. (laughs) Whatever it is, when we see it clearly, it's not mine, it's not I. It comes and goes. You don't have to let it go. You don't have to do anything with it. It's not personal. When we don't see clearly, that's when we're struggling. That's when we feel like we have to let it go. Uh, And it's better to just back off and move to a neutral anchor, build up the strength, so that we can see clearly again. So 
don't push yourself with this stuff. Realize that we develop anchors that are neutral for a reason. They help strengthen us to then face life as it is again. When I first moved to Hawaii, uh, there's an ancient dance there called hula, which probably most of you know there is such a thing. But the ancient hula uh, is very different whether it's women doing the hula or men. So the ancient hula for women is incredibly kind of typically feminine, very soft, very uh, slow. Um, receptive movements. And I had only seen that kind of hula until I moved there. And then I saw the male hula, you know, and these guys just, it's, this is the ancient hula, not the modern hula, but this energy of just, you know, warrior energy, you know, came, you know, these guys came out and all the women there scream, you know, it's like, woo, you know, and it was such a celebration of that energy. And so that both are celebrated in that ancient way, that very receptive, um, gentle uh, attention, and that very warrior, strong uh, energy is respected in that form. Um, What we're trying to do is bring them into balance within us. We're not trying to just develop the feminine or just trying to develop the masculine. But we're trying to find a balance of both. And it's that balance of receptivity, of receiving the moment, receiving another moment, and then seeing it clearly, not taking it personally, not identifying with it. That's freedom. Wherever you are is okay in that. Now, we're all growing in our own unique way. And wherever you are in this retreat, there are places where you need to be working. That's part of the practice. And it's humbling. You know, we're not perfect at this. But it's so worthwhile. You know, it's so much... Uh, you know, when you're, when you're at your death moments... I think that you will appreciate every single moment of mindfulness you've ever had. You know, it's it's like gold. Freedom is worth everything. It's worth every struggle. This is a quotation from the Visuddhimagga, The Path of Purification. For there is suffering, but none who suffers. Doing exists, although there is no doer. Extinction is, but no extinguished person. Although there is a path, there is no goer. All things can be mastered by mindfulness. Let's sit for a minute.
Each moment is just enough. Each moment is just enough. Keep going no matter what. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.